Good evening. Good to see everyone tonight. We are thankful for your presence. It is getting that time of the year. It says it's 48 degrees outside tonight, but I saw that it is supposed to be 1 tomorrow night. And I'm going to have a, uh, what they call it, a windshield that's going to be in the negative numbers. So uh, glad we met tonight instead of tomorrow night. So the next couple of days, I think we've got some bad weather coming. So please be careful. And it's going to be the time of the year. A lot of people are going to be traveling. And so I hope we don't have any messes coming up because of that. Of course, it is the holiday seasons. And I've had a lot of people giving me gifts and candy, and I have appreciated that, but not appreciated it at the same time. And yesterday, Vicki gave the office staff something that she made, and it was a big ball that looked like, um, it looked to me like one of these cake balls. And so I didn't know what it was, so I took a bite out of it, and when I did, it was filled with like uh, cocoa powder on the inside and it was meant to put in warm milk and it dissolves and makes like a hot chocolate. Well, I bit into it and then when I did, I inhaled it and I got a nostril full of uh, cocoa powder, uh, which smelled really nice, but it made, uh, it made for a bad rest of the day. So. But then when I was talking to Josh, I think he told me he either did or almost did the same thing. So you hand a guy a chocolate ball, he's going to bite it. It's what's going to happen. So uh, several people have asked about my dad. Uh, He is still sick. He's had a hard time of it. Uh, He went back to the doctor today. And so please continue to remember him in your prayers. He did test positive for COVID, but... um, I think they put him on an antibiotic today, right? So uh, not exactly sure what's going on, but please remember him. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 16, and of course this is Paul's second missionary journey. We were in the city of Philippi. Paul and Silas have gone to Philippi. When they got there, you remember that they converted Lydia at the riverside. After that, they are encountered by a slave girl who has a demon possession. Paul casts the demon out of her. As a result of this, the owners are furious, and they stir up a big stink in the city, and they have the magistrates throw them into jail because of this. While they're in jail, they're singing. The other prisoners hear them. It's about midnight. There's an earthquake. The gates open. The chains fall off. The jailer is going to kill himself as a result. Paul says, do yourself no harm. We're all here. The jailer comes in. He falls down in front of them and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe on the Lord and you will be saved. Then he tells them what to believe. It says immediately they were baptized. And then the text says, Having believed, this is a participle, meaning that literally they had completed the process of believing. That is, after they had done the things that they were taught, and then he rejoices and he feeds them. The next morning comes, and this is where we left off. The next morning comes and the authorities send message. They send a messenger to the jailer and said, tell those guys they've done their time and they can leave and get out of town. And Paul says, no. We're not going to leave. Uh, By the way, we are Roman citizens, and it was unlawful for them to have beaten us. If they want us to leave, 
They've got to come tell us themselves to leave. That's a very interesting reaction. Now, the, the authorities are going to be petrified when they realize that these were Roman citizens and they beat them with no trial. What they had done was illegal for several reasons. Number one, they weren't given a trial. Number two, I read that to whip a Roman, they would have had um, immunity from a judicial beating. And so to be beaten in this way was illegal. To beat them at all without a trial, this was illegal. And so imagine being the people that realize that you'd messed up. It made me think about a police officer who's done something illegal. Maybe he's beaten a prisoner or something like that. And then he finds out someone had it on camera. Imagine the terror that goes through them. Oh, no, I am busted. I am in big trouble. Well, these guys are in a panic now. And Paul says... Tell them to come and tell us. Tell them personally to come tell us if they want us to leave. This raises several questions. Number one, why did Paul not bring up beforehand that he was a Roman citizen? What do you think? The Bible doesn't say, so we're, spe we're just speculating here. I don't know why he would not have brought it up except... I'm assuming this happened so fast that they grabbed him and they drug him and they did this and they weren't listening. This was a mob mentality and they don't stop and give you time to explain your story. I was reading commentaries and some said, well, maybe Paul was doing this so that he could use it later to protect the brethren. I just don't think that there was that much involved in it. I think they, this was a, a rush and a mob and, and they did this. So they beat him. Now the next question is, why, after the beating, has he reacted this way? Why doesn't Paul, if you had been in prison and they had beaten you and they told you to leave now, what do you think you would do? I think I'd be inclined to get out of Dodge, you know? I think I would say, I'm out of here, I'm gone. But it very well may be that he's doing this now for the sake of the brethren. That is, we're going to put them on the spot. They've got to come and tell us to leave, and now they're kind of at their mercy. They're kind of quaking in their boots. Don't cross these guys. Don't you think that would be incentive for them to leave the Christians alone because we've got this hanging over your head? That very well might be what Paul's got in mind. I'm going to make them come and tell me, and then they will lay off the brethren and leave them alone. It also teaches us something in passing, and that is... To appeal to the government for protection is not an inappropriate thing for a Christian to do. If you've got a legal right, uh, then that is something that you can do. Okay, let's pick up at uh, Acts 16 and verse 38, and uh, Brother Loftus is going to read for us tonight. Jim, I started calling him Johnny Cash, but verse 38, all right. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. It's interesting because when you see in the, uh, the Greek, you pick up a lot of things that are interesting. When it says they came and they pleaded with them, this is in the imperfect tense, which indicates that they continued to do this. When they pleaded with them, they were probably saying, 
please just leave. Please, please go on and just, just drop this matter and leave. They didn't ask once. They were falling all over themselves repeatedly, begging them to leave. So they brought them to the edge and said, please leave our city. Move on. They wanted this thing to go away. Verse 40. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. It's interesting because they're begging them repeatedly, please leave our city. When they left the jail, is that what they did? They didn't leave the city. They entered into the house of Lydia and they visited the brethren. Um, why do you think they did that? Why do you think they weren't afraid and just left the city like they were begging them to do? Sure, they're going to see the Christians, and I think at this point they knew they're not going to say anything. You know, uh, At this point, we can go visit the brethren, and they're just going to forget it. They're not going to say, as long as we're peaceful, they're, they're not going to bring this up again. So it says they entered into Lydia's house, and it simply says they visited the brethren there. Who would have been present in Lydia's house when it says the brethren? You've got Lydia and the people that were baptized by the river. Um, the Philippian jailer, he might have been there. His household might have been there. Uh, the demon-possessed girl that they cast the demon out of, the Bible doesn't say, you think it's possible that she might have obeyed the gospel? Seems likely to me that she would have obeyed the gospel. So we don't know. Uh, whoever it was, the church in Philippi had a warm spot in the heart of Paul. When you get to the book of Philippians, you're going to see it begin this way. Philippians 1 and verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints who are in Philippi, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So years later, when he writes back to the church at Philippi, he says, I thank God in every prayer I mention you. He says, from the first day until now, that is, I have never stopped praying for you. Every single time I pray, I thank God for you. That's quite a thing to say, isn't it? When you think about all the things you have to pray for, I have had some people that have said to me, they said, Don, when we found out about your accident, we have prayed for you every single day since then and have continued to do so. That impresses me when I hear that. It's been three and a half years, and they say they are, have prayed for me every single day, and that means a lot to me. Uh, I believe God has answered the prayers. I believe that I have been taken care of and blessed. I feel extremely blessed, and I have to think the hand of the Lord is involved in that, in part because of brethren. Um, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, Paul prayed for the Philippians. What do you know about the book of Philippians, incidentally? When Paul writes back to the brethren in Philippi, how is the book of Philippians, the epistle to the Philippians, different from other epistles in the New Testament? Okay. Didn't do a whole lot of correcting. I could be wrong, and you can correct me, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I cannot recall one negative thing said to the Philippians at all. Not one single thing. Most all of the other epistles are written 
addressing problems. Sometimes people say, you know, don't preach on negative things. You couldn't preach most of the epistles because most all of the epistles were written because of problems. And he's addressed. Think about Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, you go through that book, man, a lot. You want to talk about a church that had problems. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he immediately starts, I hear from the house of Chloe, there are divisions among you. You get to chapter 5, and they've got a man who had taken his father's wife. Chapter 6, they're suing each other. You just go on and on and on. You get to Philippians, this, this is this group of people. This is Lydia's house, the Philippian jailer. Nothing bad to say about them. So that is a significant thing. Uh, we learn subsequently that Luke, when, when Paul does leave Philippi, apparently Luke is going to stay there for maybe five years. And uh, we don't know how he supported himself. Uh, what was Luke's occupation? He, he was a doctor. And uh, history says there was a medical university in Philippi. So maybe he supported himself that way. I don't know, speculation, but... He, he, maybe the brethren took care of him. He may have supported himself like Paul did, but uh, he was a doctor. There was a medical university there. Okay, that finishes out uh, this particular chapter, and we're going to go into chapter 17. Any questions or comments before we move on? Yes, sir. Yeah. No. That's right. And that's a good point because some people have the idea that uh, Christians are just, they, they take meek to mean weak and that you're just to push over. Paul certainly was not. The Lord certainly was not. So, uh, yeah, that's a good point. All right, let's go into chapter 17. And uh, Jim, if you'd start for us in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Okay, we're going to move to the next map. This was Philippi. Let's see here. All right, if we go to, uh, let's see, here's Philippi. All right, here's Philippi, right here. All right. And then it says they're going to go, uh, you can trace their journey here, Amphipolis, and they're, they're going to go to Apollonia, and then they're going to go to Thessalonica. It seems they did not stop in these other two cities. They were much smaller cities. Then they're going to go to Thessalonica, and that's where the story is going to pick up. We're told that there's a synagogue of the Jews there. Paul would always go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. When you hear that he went to Thessalonica, why does that city stand out in your mind? Okay, Thessalonians. What about the Thessalonians? Okay, he's later going to write two letters back to the church that he establishes here. So he goes to the synagogue, all right, verse 2. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Okay, you can see when he left Philippi here, this is... I need to just get a laser that would work better, that I could turn around and point at this. But here's Philippi, and here's Thessalonica. 
This is about 100 miles that he goes from one to the other. Thessalonica, I was reading, had a population of about 200,000. So it is a very large city. The name Thessalonica was actually named by Alexander the Great, and it was named after his sister, who was named Thessalonica. You ever met a woman named Thessalonica? It's kind of an uh, off-the-wall name, but that was his sister. It says he reasoned there for three Sabbaths. So three Saturdays in a row, he went and he reasoned. The word reasoned is a Greek word that means disputed, discussed, and reasoned. It carries with it the idea of debate. This also uh, kind of goes back to the point Jonathan was making, and that is people have the idea that Christians just have to be soft, don't ever say anything that offends anybody, you're going to be a pushover. And, but when he went into the city, the idea is he disputed with them. Now, he's not being ugly about it, but he is debating them. He is saying, tell me what you think, and they would tell him, and he would say, all right, let me offer you some reasons why that's not legitimate. Let me offer you some reasons why this is legitimate. So there is a, a back and forth. Paul's standing his ground here. Toby? That's right. Yeah, Romans 13, 1 through 3 says the powers that be are ordained of God and they're a terror against those who do evil, not against those who do good. But, uh, of course, some governments, though they are ordained of God, some governments, they're made of men, they become corrupt, but we're still to uh, honor the government. But the purpose that God ordained the government for was to be a terror against those who do uh, evil. So, yeah, that's right. Um, all right, so he reasoned with them, he debated them. Um, it's interesting because Paul's method, every time he goes into the synagogue, he does the same thing. He appeals to the Old Testament scriptures, he directs their attention to prophecies about Jesus, and then he points out Jesus, and then he says, this is the man, this is the Messiah. So he gives them some history, and then he says the Messiah was coming. You see these particular scriptures that prophesied about him? Remember that happened? Remember that happened in Jerusalem? This is the man. And so he goes back and he proves from the scriptures this is the one. And he does that same pattern everywhere that he goes. I have been... Well, let's, let's read the next verse, and then I'll make some comments. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Okay, he's explaining and he's demonstrating from the scriptures saying this is the Christ. He reasoned from the scriptures. I have been listening to um, a well-known preacher, teacher from Tennessee, this week, I've been listening to some, some lessons of his online, and he was talking about what we need to do to keep the younger generation. And he goes through a list of things that we need to do. And it was interesting. He said, number one, we need to not dress up. 
He said, because the younger generation doesn't like that. He said, number two, we need to stop talking about authority. He said, because the younger generation does not like this concept of talking about authority. Number three, he suggested that we have praise teams. He said, we get better music that way, and that's appealing to younger people. Number four, he suggested maybe we stop having uh, services on Sunday nights and maybe have uh, cluster groups or something instead of a Sunday night service. He said because the younger generation likes to talk. And I'm listening to that, and that just struck me this week as I was, uh, today as I was going through preparing this on the book of Acts. Because as Paul is converting people, Paul is reasoning with them. He's going to the Scriptures. He makes spiritual arguments appealing to their spiritual appetite, not uh, frivolous fleshly appetites, you know, not um, less uh, have, uh, what do they call, praise teams, because they'll like that better. Paul never does that sort of thing. He always appeals to the Scriptures. Romans 1.16, he says that, the power of God unto salvation is what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. I was listening to what uh, this man was saying, and, and he said some, some things that were good that we need to um, make note of. Paul said he became all things to all men, and certainly we would use different approaches with different people. But we've got to be very, very careful when we start appealing to things like this to alter the church, to change so that we can get people. Because the power is in the message. And I am absolutely convinced that I don't believe that uh, millennials or younger generations, I uh, forget what they call the generation after the millennials, but the, uh, is it the Y generation? Is that right? Whatever it is, I don't believe that they are so shallow that we have to do these superficial things to convince them. I think if we will give them the real, true arguments, that they will be convinced by the power of God, just like anybody else. To say that we have to uh, bring in praise teams, or else we're going to start losing the younger people, um, that is dangerous. It is dangerous. And when I heard that, I thought um, that man had lost any respect that I might have had for him. That is not where the power is. Anyway, get off that soapbox. It just occurred to me as I was listening to this, the way Paul was preaching and the things he was appealing to versus what was being said uh, by this brother. So anyway, uh, he's explaining and demonstrating from the Scriptures that Christ had to suffer and rise again. All right, verse number 4. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Okay. It says, after he preached this message, everybody responded, right? Everyone was persuaded, right? Okay. Some of them were persuaded. So why were some persuaded and some weren't? Was Paul falling down in his message somewhere? All right, Acts chapter 2 says they were pricked in their heart. Acts chapter 7 says they were cut to the heart. 
Same message, both inspired by the Holy Spirit. One group was pricked, the other was cut. Different reaction. It had to do with the people. You know, today, I have to wonder if Paul preached today and some people weren't persuaded. In fact, we're going to see some people are going to get quite angry and quite offended. Could you imagine some people today saying, well, Paul, it was because of your demeanor. You think anybody would say that today? You think anybody might say, well, Paul, it's because you were debating with them. You were being too confrontational. Would anybody say that today, or am I making that up? People would say that today. The problem wasn't Paul. The problem wasn't his demeanor. The problem wasn't that he was debating. The problem wasn't the message. It's the same thing it has always been, and that is the heart of men. Some hearts respond, and some hearts do not. You know, I always think about John chapter 6 with our Lord, that some, after listening to Jesus, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? King James says hard. Some versions say objectionable. That is, they listened to Jesus and they said, this is objectionable. We can't hear this. The Bible says they went away and they walked no more with him. It will always be that way. If we preach like Paul, we preach like the Lord, some will respond and some will not. That is the nature of it. Now, why is that significant? Because we can't beat ourselves up and say, you know, I messed up. It must have been me. I must not have presented the message in the right way. It's possible that you didn't. I mean, that is very possible. You could do it in an inappropriate or mean way. But the message, if it is preached in its kindest form, will offend some people. And so we don't need to stop preaching and teaching people because some people don't uh, respond or some people find it offensive. All right? Any comments, questions? All right? Let's keep going. Uh, let's see, verse number, well, verse 4, when it says, Some were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks. That means that some of the Jews were persuaded, and a whole lot of the Gentiles were persuaded. And it says, and not a few of the leading women. So there were, some Jews were persuaded, a lot of Gentiles were persuaded, and then also some of the prominent women in the town. It is interesting to me when you think about this, some of the Jews and a whole lot of the Gentiles. Who should have been better prepared to receive the message? The Jews or the Gentiles? You would think the Jews, but some of the Jews and a lot of the Gentiles. Why that difference? Okay. Okay, You know, I have found it to be the case over the years, if I try to teach someone who is coming out of a different religion and they've already got things preconceived in their head, it's hard sometimes to teach them. But if you teach a person who doesn't really have any religious background, it's a lot easier. You don't have to unteach things. And they are they're more accepting. Maybe that's what's going on here. I don't know. In fact, that seems to me... That's what it is. Now, it's interesting also that it says, not a few of the leading women. The idea here, talking about the women, is uh, these would have been women who had uh, places of leadership in the city. Does that strike you as an odd thing to read about this period of time? 
I read that in Macedonia there was more freedom than just about any other place in the ancient world, particularly for what we would call women's rights. You had leading women there. Even though they had leading women and they converted a lot of women in this city, I think it's significant that you never hear about women preachers. These are educated women. These are leading women. But they didn't become preachers in the first century church. Why? Because that had nothing to do with education or status or anything like that. Sometimes we're told the reason that women weren't in leadership positions in the first century was that was just the culture. Well, it wasn't the culture in Thessalonica, and yet you still didn't have women preachers in Thessalonica because 1 Timothy uh, 2, uh, 12 and following, this was the mandate of God that it was to be this way. All right, uh, verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. All right, some of the Jews who were not persuaded, it says they became envious. Why were the Jews envious? Okay, they're starting to follow the Christians. In essence, Paul is bankrupting the synagogue. As these Jews are leaving the synagogue, these people that, you know, this is their thing. This is how they make their living. This is where they get their prestige. And when people start leaving the synagogue to follow them, the Bible says they became envious. And as a result of that, how did they handle it? Did they go and say, well, we'll debate you. We will prove to you that you're wrong not what they did. It says that they went to the marketplace and they gathered evil men. Now, this was interesting. I looked up this word for evil. The King James says lewd men. One version says vile men. The American Standard says rabble. Uh, it carries with it the idea of uneducated men who were hanging around the marketplace. They weren't working. They're just hanging around there probably looking for trouble. And so, the Jewish leaders knew that there were going to be these kind of sorry men hanging around over there not working. So they went to them and they said, uh, hey, we need some men to stir up some trouble. We've got some guys here that uh, we want you to handle. Isn't it interesting that these are the religious leaders and that's what they think to do? Let's go hire some thugs that are hanging around down there not working and let them take care. You would think that if they were good, honest, religious men... They wouldn't do this, but that's exactly what they're going to do. So they go and stir up these people, and they come and attack the house of Jason. Who is Jason? We don't know, except he appears to be a Christian. It seems that they thought that Paul and Silas were staying at the house of Jason. I read that Jason was a very common name in that area in that time, so maybe they had the wrong Jason. Maybe they just weren't at the house of Jason. Whatever it is, they're trying to, to get them, tell us where they are, and he doesn't know, or they're not there. They can't find them as a result of this. Uh, verse 6. But, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They couldn't find Paul and Silas, so they just took Jason's family. 
and they drug them out, and they start a big ruckus, and they say, these are the ones that have turned the world upside down. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Is that a compliment or an insult? (laughs) Did they mean it as a compliment or an insult? They meant it as an accusation to cause trouble, but uh, what they were saying is these men have been causing trouble everywhere. Whatever they're doing, they've been doing it everywhere, and now they are doing it here. They were converting so many people that they said they're turning the world upside down. I know the bell's about to ring, but I want to leave us with this question. Could that be said about us at the Willow Avenue congregation? We've been turning the world upside down. Would people say, think about yourself personally, would people say that that you've been turning the world upside down for Christianity? What were they doing that made people say they were turning the world upside down? They were preaching. And so if we're not turning the world upside down, why are we not? They were debating, and they were turning the world upside down. They were converting people. They were challenging the religious thinking and the environment they were in, and they were turning the world upside down. If it can't be said of us, we need to ask, why not? Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. We'll pick up there next week.